Hello, 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 Bending Granite listeners. I'm Tim Halleck, and this is my podcast about people making a difference. This is episode three of my three-part podcast with past mayor of Madison, Paul Soglin. I hope you took the time to listen to Paul's first two podcasts, and I hope you share them with others by email or social media. In this episode, Tom Moskeller and Paul visit about bringing communities together to improve. This is the story that Paul wrote in our book, Bending Granite. He titled it, The Harambee Collaborative. And I have to say, of all the things Paul, Madison's mayor for 22 years, could have written about, he chose this. Because this story, like the previous two podcasts, get to the heart of what Paul is all about, bringing people together to build trust. Now, not all good stories have a happy ending. Maybe this one does. Or perhaps it doesn't. But, like any worthy story, you'll have to wait until the end to judge that. Now I have to apologize up front. In order for you to make a judgment, this podcast will need to take some digressions. However, I'll compensate you for all the departures by introducing you to one of the most delightful, intelligent, and interesting emerging leaders in our community, Tia Murray, the director of the new Harambee Birth and Family Center. Paul and Tia have never met, but they're cut from the same ilk. I couldn't help but notice the uncanny similarity in their styles and their remarkable commitment to a common cause. We'll bounce back and forth between Paul talking about the original Harambee and Tia talking about the new Harambee. Paul's story begins with what he calls the Neighborhood Resource Team. With the help of veteran community organizer Tom Moskeller, they set out to apply community organizing approaches they learned over the years from Saul Alinsky and John McKnight. For those of you unfamiliar with Saul Alinsky and John McKnight, here's some background. Saul Alinsky's book, Rules for Radicals, was published in 1971. It outlines a philosophy and approach for community organizing that is still widely used today. His focus was on empowering marginalized communities and giving them the tools to advocate for themselves. He believed that the most effective way to create change was to build power from the bottom up by organizing people at the local level to take action on the issues that affected their lives. John McKnight, a professor at Northwestern University and author of several books, He teaches a community-driven approach for building on the strengths and resources of the community rather than on their deficits. In other words, find the assets and build on them. Like Alinsky, McKnight stresses the importance of community members themselves driving the process and having control over resources. Both emphasize the importance of building relationships and networks among community members, identifying and supporting local leaders, collaboration among organizations, and developing a sense of shared ownership. Both would agree that communities are not problems to be fixed, but rather the solutions waiting to happen. Here's Tom and Paul talking about neighborhood resource teams. We began some improvement efforts around your agenda of community and health and the Harambee work and maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the key players and some of the events that were from your perspective really important around that. There were two major initiatives. 
The first one had to do with the neighborhood resource teams. And we were a conventional city government organized by departments. The problems we were dealing with occurred in about seven, eight, a dozen specific neighborhoods. Relatively small, given the size of the city at the time. We're talking about communities of four or five hundred up to no more than 2,000 people. So using the fundamentals of TQM, we said, okay, let's put together teams from different departments. This is not just for the nurses and public health. This is bus drivers, police officers, firefighters, building inspectors. Streets, streets employees. Streets employees. The people who were in the neighborhoods were on the ground and saw what was happening. So we assembled these teams, and they were entry-level employees. They were department heads. And department heads and entry employees would sit at the table, elbow to elbow, without regard to status or agency. The second thing we had to do is we had to do training. And the key word here was resource. And here we were going back to our friend... Uh, Sololinsky, never do anything for anyone they can do for themselves. And we had to get in discussions about race and poverty, but also, even though we're government and we have the authority of government, we are not in charge. We are not in charge. We are a resource to this neighborhood. And that also meant the agenda had to be set by the neighborhood. So after about a six-month training program, our teams were unleashed and started meeting with the neighborhoods where they were teams were assigned, building trust, tapping into other resources. Here's the, the influence of our friend John McKnight. Might be faith-based, might be a grocery store, whatever, in the neighborhood, other agencies in the neighborhood. And, and we went to work. What we ended up doing was, in certain instances, specifically allocating budget amounts to the efforts identified by the neighborhood, which we, as a resource, could provide. It could be like a library or a health center or potholes or whatever they saw important. Fixing up a neighborhood park shelter. Mm. Two of the most important and profound that eventually, in a later decade, were to come along were a brand new bus route Mm. out to Owl Creek. And then, of course, the grocery store at Ally Drive, funding that. So that all takes place. But within the context of that came what was eventually referred to as Harambe, which was the South Madison Community Health Center. And the South Madison Community Health Center, I think, is one of the city's finest achievements. And again, that effort is a result of of listening to the neighborhood. So we're out there on the south side. And even though Madison has got nationally recognized one of the finest healthcare systems in the world, we've got several thousand people out South Park Street towards the Beltline who don't have access to healthcare. Yeah, we've got a great health system, but if you're white, you've got good health insurance, it's the best in the world. If you're black, if you're Hmong, if you're Latino, and you're unemployed or you're in a minimum wage job, your health care is horrible. So in response to that, we decided to set up a community-based health system, and it wasn't easy. When we announced it, 
the aldermen of the district who represented the community called it a welfare temple. Fortunately, that was not a universal response to the proposal. What we did is we provided intake for for health, uh, childhood immunizations, a cough, any imaginable disease. We had a family enhancement program for parents and their and their toddlers. And eventually, when we moved into the new facility, we collaborated with the public library. And then the real success, of course, was bringing in all the health care providers. Mm. So Pat Gadow, our, our public health director, many times said to me, leave this to me, I'll take care of it. And so she was out there with her staff working with a number of women in the community building up this healthcare system, a very different healthcare system, because what we have to understand here is if you're a young African-American woman, even if the local hospitals and clinics say, we welcome you as a patient, it's a forbidding white male institution. And that's the reality. And that kind of institution is not accessible in terms of the intimate life of a, of a young woman. My name is Tia Murray. I'm the new executive director of the Harambe Birth and Family Center. I am a Madison native. I'm born and raised here. I'm now raising five children from age 18 all the way down to three. So that's one of my full-time jobs, but really my work has revolved around bringing back the legacy and the work that the Harambe Collaborative has done in this community so long ago. And, and really my journey and connections to Harambe start um, when I was a child. I remembered as a child my experience at the Harambe Center. My mother actually um, worked as a parent-to-parent coordinator and volunteer with Miss Betty and all the other elders that I, I call them at the Harambe Center. And I, I ran through those hallways. I enjoyed being in that space. I saw women that looked like me. I saw children that looked like me. I went back there when I was 18 because mm-hmm. I knew they had breastfeeding support groups in 2005 when I had my first son. And this was before the center closed, obviously. And so I knew in my lived experience the power of that center and the work that those women were doing. Really the end goal um, of bringing the Harambe Center back, but really bringing all of us together under one house to recreate that one-stop shop comprehensive model that Paul Soglin talks about. I decided to create my own model, really built off of the legacy of the work that Miss Betty Banks has done, who's my mentor, but really trying to also bring a focus to the fact that Black babies are not seeing their first birthday. And so with women in the community, Pat and her staff went to work, and it wasn't a matter of just building trust. It was also a matter of changing the minds and the approach of other healthcare providers. And that's where uh, this thing really began to, to, to sing. We were looking at serving an area of about two square miles. That's all. Within two years, we had patients coming in from Greene County, from Monroe, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. 
uh, down on the Illinois border. I guess that's about 70, 75 miles away. We were serving big chunks of not just the city of Madison, but Dane County. And Pat and I were doing a review one day. And I can't remember the numbers now, but like 25, 30% of our patients were from the adjacent township, which in some cases, just a few hundred yards away from our facility. So I was a little resentful that we're putting all this city money into this system to take care of our people. And we got these free riders. So I meet with the town chairman and the town chairman says, hey, you don't have to provide health care to our residents. Our health system is through the county. Give them a referral to the county. Well, the county health facility is on the other side of the city, which is like, I don't know, 12 miles away. So Pat and I are discussing this and she says, you mean, Mayor, a mother comes in with a two-year-old child who should have been getting their first immunization a year and a half ago, and I'm to refer them across town, a couple of bus transfers. I'm not to give that child an immunization right then and there. Well, the message came through to me. I said, sure, Pat, go ahead. You're right. We immunize everybody. We treat everybody. But she didn't stop there. She said, we got to change the system. She had already gone to the medical school. The medical school turned us down. At the university. University of Wisconsin Medical School. They turned us down in terms of participation. So Pat decides to go for, shall we call it, the low-hanging fruit. She goes to her friends at the School of Nursing, where she's got all these contacts. And she says, how about you guys coming in? We're short docs, but we can always use more nurses. The School of Nursing says yes. And they buy into this system. They understand that prospective patients are not going to go to the looming, gigantic University of Wisconsin Hospital, but they will go to the space we're occupying in this old beer hall, or later the space we're occupying in what was once a bowling alley. So then the medical school suddenly changes its mind. Oh, school of nursing. We can't be left left aside here. You know, we're we're committed to justice and and equitable health care. Well, before it's over, we got the medical school and the nursing school. We've got Dane County now participating. We've got the major hospitals, uh, Meritor, the old Madison General, St. Mary's. Everybody is stepping in as well as access. I think a lot of folks have heard about this idea of the social determinants of health. We know that most of that falls outside of the clinical walls. And so oftentimes folks are, or they can even talk about their pregnancy or taking a prenatal vitamin, they're struggling with other challenges. They may not be able to pay their rent or they may be living in their car and at risk of having their baby early. Or maybe it's a well-resourced person who just isn't being listened to by their provider. And so how do you get your needs met or receive quality health care if one, your providers don't look like you, have no similar lived experience, or they're not listening to you? And so we're really trying to meet all of the needs that aren't being met, not only in our larger society, but also within our healthcare system.
Here's an amazing point. If you want to know the overall health of a population and the well-being of a community, you think you'd need to collect a lot of information. But all you really need to know is four key things. One, the health of infants. Two, the health of their mothers. Three, the health of their families. And finally, four, the communities where they live. Those four indicators, in truth, tell you almost everything you need to know. So allow me a digression from our story to consider some facts. In the 90s, the infant mortality rate for black babies was three to four times higher than for white babies in Wisconsin. Between 2002 and 2004, black infant mortality rate in Wisconsin was the worst, at least for the 40 states that reported data. The overall infant mortality rate in Madison and Dane County reached a rate of 19.4 deaths per 1,000 births. Currently, it's around 6.5. I guess you could say things weren't so good. However, here was the good news. From 2002 to 2007, the rate of deaths per 100,000 dropped from 19.4 to 6.4. Incredible. But that wasn't the end of the story. Not only did the rate drop an astounding 67%, but, and this is what made the CDC set up and take notice, so much notice they commissioned a study, Madison and Dane County's rate of infant mortality for black and white babies were equal. No disparity. Not seen almost any place in the country. It was remarkable. So what did the CDC find? Well, it's complex. They take a stab at some potential factors like the way data was collected or possible changes in clinical practices. They even note no significant changes in the area's healthcare infrastructure, and on and on. There's no direct reference to any special community actions. The CDC's overall conclusion can be summed up in this statement. The findings of this study should be interpreted with cautions and studied further to determine if the apparent reduction in deaths is an artifact or can be attributed to yet unidentified factors. Or in other words, their findings were inconclusive. More recent data for Wisconsin has infant mortality rate now at about six deaths per 1,000 births. Current data for Madison and Dane County is slightly better than that of the state overall. Although the disparity between black and whites has trended negatively, since the CDC report, with black babies' deaths being three times higher than that of white babies. Our library, which is adjacent to the healthcare system, is getting more and more patrons. Family Enhancement is working with the families on family issues outside of traditional health issues. We got this system, it's rock and rolling. The staff is excited about it they're making unprecedented progress. So we set out to provide health care. Started around 92, 93. The new facility opens up around 95 or so, 96. By the time I leave office in 97, it's incredible. I, I can remember paying visits and looking around the room, and there'd be 30, 40 people waiting to be seen, all races, all ages children with coughs, older folks uh, who are having trouble walking. Mm -hmm. Then one day, I'm out of office, we get a report. This is about 2000, 
to 2003. There has been a steady decline in African-American infant mortality in Madison and Dane County for several years now. And in fact, it is so low. African-American infant mortality is as low as white infant mortality. It's the only place in the nation where this is happening. Some studies were done as to what accounted for this, and the bottom line is nobody could figure it out. There were no scientific breakthroughs, uh, nothing, nothing of that sort. The one thing they never looked at was whether or not the simple presence of this facility and the nature of the approach to serving a community and having a healthcare system that was not managed top-down might have had something to do with it. We have allocated millions and millions and millions of dollars and resources to the problem, but we've completely missed the mark. I struggle with the way that the narrative around what happened at the Harambe Center as a whole, but particularly when we saw the deepest decline in Black infant mortality, right, nationally, we've never made parity with white infant mortality. So that should have been like, you know, <laughs> you throw millions and millions at that, right? Because this was a, it wasn't just a blimp, right? It happened over a series of years. It was a gradual decline. And then we made parity. I mean, that that is something to talk about. That was huge, so much that the CDC did a half a million dollar study, but it was deemed inconclusive. What people don't ask themselves is what is different. Some of the conclusion also stated that, you know, we didn't find any technological advances in healthcare or, you know, any, any of these other changes, but everything looks the same, except we no longer have the Harambe Center as an asset in the community. Right. So, of course, we're going to get the same results. And I would argue they're even worse. And so absolutely that that statement or that quote from um, Mr. Sogland stood out to me in the story because we're dealing with the same thing. You know, I was two years old when him and Miss Betty sat down together to dream and envision what Harambe could be. And here I am, 35, raising five children and nothing has changed. Uh, we still have white-led institutions, and they're also run by white males. You know, if we don't have the perspective or the diversity of the communities that we're serving at the table, nothing will ever change. Things are rolling along just fine. Staff is happy. We're getting good health service. I'm out of office. I'd always hoped, but it never happened, that a similar facility would be built on the east side of town. But now we've got a, a director for the facility that all she's doing is making sure that the meeting rooms are in order, that meetings with the community-based groups are scheduled, doors are unlocked for them to meet, and it's decided that she's not needed anymore. We also are challenged by HIPAA because our, our system is so, shall we say, open. A lot of patients who are waiting are very visible and consequently don't have privacy. To make the rest of the story come to an end, Harambe, the Council of Women, and the staff that 
had been the backbone of the system, the advisory group, the one who set the priorities, disappears and goes away. And along with that, African-American infant mortality starts rising again. seem to have this pattern that when things are done well in the community, particularly done well by folks and leaders of color, it tends to get defunded, stripped away, or voted out. Um, And so we never quite get there. But it's interesting, we do have a very deficit-based approach to how we allocate resources here. But it makes sense, right? We, We only want to allocate resources to the problems as opposed to lifting up what's already happening and what's working well versus doing a community assessment and really looking at the assets in the local community that are doing the work and doing it well and getting great outcomes. Why wouldn't we invest? It's the same thing in the business world. If there's a company that's doing well, right, we're going to invest in it. We're going to right throw resources and allocate you know allocate resources to it to grow it to expand it to scale it. Why wouldn't we do that from a social services aspect, right? From an economic development aspect, we're very much deficit based and we're not asset based. And if we were able to flip the way that we think about that, you know how much we could do with millions of dollars right now from a community wow. grassroots perspective, wow. because those that are on the ground doing good work will never get that recognition because there isn't a problem. Okay, so we once impacted Black infant mortality rates. Well, since the center closed, we've only seen a drastic incline of Black infant mortality rates, and it just continues to get worse every year. I think that the feature of what was going on that made the difference was this. Before, after, in all health settings, a pregnant woman is being told, get rest, don't smoke, don't drink, be careful of what you eat, watch your weight, be careful about your blood pressure. All these factors that are important during pregnancy in terms of the well-being of the child. But... What that center brought was one additional factor. The contact with the neighborhood women, the ones who in the very beginning had said, we need a health center. Their being in the neighborhood on a daily, regular basis, interacting with the pregnant women as a reminder, as a friend, made that message of health care during pregnancy more vital. Neighbor to neighbor. Yes. That was the element that was new, that changed the infant mortality rate and lowered it. And as that fell apart, that is why it increased. I have no documentation. I don't have the data to support my observations. But I'm absolutely convinced that some of this was the breakthrough. And of course, having a neighborhood woman have knowledge about a woman's pregnancy might, in some cases, have been a violation of HIPAA and the privacy. They weren't health professionals. The, the, the system was designed and the system worked because community-based people identified a problem. Community-based people were brought in and participated in the design. The staff participated in the delivery, the design of the delivery of the service. 
They participated in identifying and bringing in the partners. Nobody from top down told them what to do. And when Pat, as the department head, would go to the other agencies, she wasn't doing it in a top-down manner. She was doing it as we see participation by her staff in identifying what additional services were needed, who were the additional participants that we, 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 we needed. People can relate to this if they think about all those television shows where there's conflict between the local police and the FBI. I mean, this is a theme in, in so many police cops movies, uh, is, is the conflict in agencies. It, it never turns out well. Well, imagine if the officers in all the departments who are on the street who have to interact with each other are the ones who were set upon to solve this problem rather than some chief division head back in some office who's simply barking orders. Well, we didn't have that. Pat never had to go to her staff and say, we're bringing in UW hospitals and St. Mary's. You have to work with them. Because her staff said, we need their participation. Please bring them in. I mean, collaboration is really at the heart of what we're doing. And, you know, people talk about collaboration, but it's not true collaboration. What happened at the Harambe Center back in the day, that was true collaboration. So it's not just about ensuring that we all don't die when we go in to have our babies or that our babies live when we come out, but that we are thriving at every step of the life course and that we continue to thrive for generations to come. In regards to the Harambe Collaborative, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions to the story. As for Paul Soglin, Paul could have written about a hundred different initiatives. There's so many improvements in his 22 years as mayor, and it would take almost another podcast to list them all. But let me list a few success areas notable to Paul's tenure. And it's important to note that many of these achievements were done in collaboration with the city council, other government agencies, community nonprofit organizations, and the private sector. So, let me start. Economic development. Paul can be credited for creating a business-friendly environment in Madison, which helped attract new business to the city. Transportation. Paul oversaw the construction of new bike paths and the expansion of the city bus rapid transit system to make it easier for residents to get around the city. Environmental initiatives. He has always been a strong advocate for environmental protection and sustainability. And during his tenure, Madison was recognized as one of the most environmentally friendly cities in the United States. Public safety. Soglin's administration implemented various programs to improve public safety in the city, including community policing and youth programs. Arts and culture. Paul was an advocate of the arts and culture, and during his tenure, the city experienced a significant expansion of its arts and culture scene. He also supported the development of the Overture Center for the Arts and helped create a city's first public art program. Education. 
Paul was a strong advocate for education, and during his tenure as mayor, the city saw an increase in funding for schools and a decrease in the dropout rate. Technology. His administration implemented a number of technology initiatives aimed at making the city services more accessible and efficient, including the launch of a citywide Wi-Fi network and the development of mobile apps for city services. Community engagement. Like the Harambe Collaborative, Paul placed a high priority on engagement with the community. He launched a number of initiatives that increased citizens' participation in government. Economic inequalities. Paul had a strong focus on reducing economic inequalities, which included implementing policies aimed at providing better jobs and educational opportunities for low-income residents as well as increasing the minimum wage. I think you get the picture. Overall, his governance style, I think, was characterized by a willingness to take bold actions to address important issues. A commitment to progressive values and a focus on community engagement and empowerment. It was a pleasure to visit with Paul. We could have done a 10-part podcast on just him. What I hope is Paul writes his own book and tells his own story. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our featured guest, Paul Soglin. It was a lot of fun, Paul. To Tia Murray, who signs her emails, peace and love. A big peace and love to you, and I wish your Harambe efforts all the best. Thanks to all the guests who participated in this three-part podcast. I have lots of materials, and I'm thinking about posting a bonus episode for all those outtake stories you shared. A shout-out to the Bending Granite Court team of Murray Cotter, Kathleen Paris, who does a podcast soon with Ian Pizza, Michael Williamson, who will be featured in our next podcast entitled Never Waste a Crisis, and of course, Tom Moskeller, our fantastic interviewer. Fantastic only because he's such a gracious listener. Don't forget to come and visit us on bendinggranite.org and share this podcast with others. I'm Tim Halleck, and this has been another episode of Bending Granite.